Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Aranax podcast. My name's Craig Eason. I'm the owner and editorial director of Fathom World, and I am your regular host on this podcast. And with me today, um, as a very, very, very special guest, is uh, Diane Gilpin, who is um, one of the most well-known wind experts within the maritime sector, I'll say. I've known Diane Gilpin for a number of years. Hi, Di. How are you? Hello, Craig. I'm really well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You have uh, just come back from COP26. You've been up in Glasgow, but while you were there, you won an award. You were given a recognition, outstanding contribution to the industry, to the wind propulsion industry, while you were up in COP26. Um, how does it feel to be one of the most wild, wildly, widely <laughs> recognised names within the industry? Wild and wide. No, it's real. It's a real honour. I mean. When when we started out on this journey in wind, um, I think there was me and Gavin Allwright, who's the Secretary General, and a few other organisations, maybe five. Thomas Risky from North Power was there. Um, but it was a very nascent, emerging opportunity in the global maritime space. Um, so, I don't know, what is it, seven, eight years? One doesn't want to dwell on the number of years, but... Um, there is now membership of about 150, I think. So it's an absolute honour to have been recognised um, as being a nuisance for that long and talking about wind to anybody uh, who would pass me the time of day. Um, it's just been great uh, and it, it was a real honour. There's lots of um, fantastic opportunities for other companies now emerging in wind so as Fletners and wing sales and um, all sorts of technologies it's a really really vibrant sector and to be recognized in that has been just such an honor because they're friends and you know peers so it's been great but I have seen myself over the years and a difference in how the wind propulsion sector has become more recognized and accepted I interviewed um one of the leading maritime names at a leading classification society a few years ago who said, no, wind is never really going to take off. It's just not going to fit into the shipping industry. And yet here we see it now with a lot of industry, other well, a lot of other industry actors, not just within the shipping industry, but um, um, charterers and other industry players recognizing the value of wind we we saw how Vale have taken to putting wind systems on their ships we see how um, charterers are really sort of looking at the wind sector um, both as a wind assist and also now we see a number of propulsion systems where it's the total um, encapsulating of the of the whole supply chain and, and that's where I, th- I think there, there there is a distinction here between the two isn't there one is the wind assist as a retrofitable solution that goes onto an existing ship and can actually help it with its decarbonisation goals. And the other one, which is something that you've been more involved in, I see, from the years that I've known you, is this looking at a a sailing vessel, a modern sailing vessel. Let's not 
hark back to the olden days of sail, but a very modern sailing vessel as part of a supply chain. And I know within your smart green um, solution that you've got today, and even when you, in your before life at Benign, if I've got that rightly, wasn't it? You were looking at the total solution. So how have you seen those two sort of evolve over the last couple of years? So I think, so yes, we're absolutely. We've been, we've been seeing the opportunity for uh, a holistic integrated design. So if you use wind uh, and so you've got the, the above the water aerodynamic benefits, if you combine that with optimised hull design, then you can get much more power from the wind systems. But that's a big ask for the industry to go from not no wind to let's do this brand new build. So what we've seen is the um, market becoming more interested in retrofit solutions. And that's really helpful in the challenge, the, the climate challenge of reducing emissions in the short term, because we can retrofit um, relatively quickly and start to drive emissions out of the existing fleet. And so, you know, the whole decarbonisation challenge is really interesting because, you know, we're not going to just chuck the existing fleet in the bin and start again. So there has to be a transitionary period. So I think the way to go is retrofit, which is what we're working on now. Um, and that provides the learning and the um, data for then feeding into new build systems, which as the market becomes more familiar with the technology can can be more open to, to you know bigger new build costs. So I think that you know it's a transition um, and we can be transformational with that transition, but we need to start with what we've got. We can't start with where we want to be, we've got to start with where we actually are. And a study for the Department for Transport, the UK Department for Transport identified 40,000 ships that could be retrofitted. So, you know, it's a big enough market for us all to play in. Um, and there's plenty of different solutions that are that are being um, developed, but we need, we need to be bringing more of those to market so that we can give confidence to the sector that, you know, these things work. It's not just a, a you know, pretty picture and a bunch of um, academics doing some maths. You know, this is, you know, how does the crew work? It, it, those sorts of yeah, really yeah. things. But I mean, there, there are a lot of questions. I mean, I, I've seen a number of companies that, are, that began to emerge, say, seven or eight years ago um, with retrofitable solutions that have struggled financially and, you know, really, really struggled to, to make that mark to go from an idea to a concept to doing the trials. Um, to actually then sort of ramping up and commercialization. I'm going to come back to the finance angle at the moment, but do you feel that there's much more of an appetite then for the kind of solutions that we saw 10 years ago, but largely mm -hmm. were ignored then, but perhaps are not going to be ignored now? Absolutely. I think that the, the conversation, I mean, you know, we've talked, we're just back from COP, but the conversation is much more around how do we decarbonize rapidly? Um, we have opportunities for alternative fuels being developed in the future, and that's fantastic, and that must happen. But the IPCC, um, you know, the scientists say that we've got to start reducing emissions from every sector in the next eight years by between a third and a half. And the only way that we can do that is through retrofitting wind um, and looking at other energy efficiency solutions like uh, route optimization and hull cleaning 
Um, and then we can start to make a significant difference in inroads. And I think one of the challenges that we had in the past is that people don't really know where to put wind. So it's, it's not a fuel. It's definitely not a fuel because you can't mm. put it in your, you know, you can't bunker it. Um, so it's energy efficiency, but actually it's more than energy efficiency because it provides direct thrust. So, you know, when we think about, let's say hydrogen, making hydrogen, you make it from offshore wind and then you transport it back into land as a, as a fuel storage system, in this case, hydrogen, and then you transport it about a bit more and then you put it in a ship and it goes back to sea and it probably sails past the wind turbine where it was originally made. And my argument is, well, let's just cut out the middleman where we can and use the, the, the energy, the power source for direct thrust at the point of service, because that is a much more efficient use of energy. So mm. you lose a lot of the energy in that transit. So if you're making hydrogen for offshore wind, that transport, you, you only left with about 10% of the energy that, was, yeah. that you started with. We can use it 100% in the maritime sector. No other sector has that opportunity. So it's power um, and it reduces overall emission, but overall demand for fuel and happens to make a big dent in your emissions. I, I think also there's this um, visual aspect of this technology, which in the shipping industry, given the the way it gets represented in the, in the mainstream news, not necessarily in uh, in um, industry news sites, um, but in the mainstream news and the general image of the shipping industry is is not necessarily one of it's not necessarily the cleanest of images, but the sight of these vessels with these these rotor sails, the wing sails, or other types of kinds of systems on board, it's a very very visual representation of change within this industry, isn't it? It's a very good positive story. Oh, I think so, um, and I think there's 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 a really good. St- so first of all, I would say that shipping has a much much better story to tell than it does. You know, it's fant- and we and we 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 as consumers learned about the, the the importance of global supply chains during covid and i think we underlined the the, the importance of shipping um, but i think there's more to it than that i think i think we really have an opportunity to tell a great story about what shipping does for for glo- for global world not just trade but you know sharing culture and ideas and all sorts of things like that um, so i think that, that shipping has a much better story to tell and I think we can tell a great story about deploying renewable energy uh, on ships. And one of the things that makes us um, optimistic is we get a lot of interest from outside of the shipping industry in what we're doing. And I think that that has helped us enormously in um, getting as far as we've got, which is not far enough. We'll come and talk about that in a minute, the, 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 the funding bit. But, you know, there is... Shipping has a place in people's hearts. You know, the world in which we live was built on there's, there's, there's always been that element of romanticism about the ship sailing over the horizon and coming back safely with the cargo. Yeah, and I think there's a really interesting metaphor there for what we're facing in terms of climate. You know, we don't know quite what the future holds, but we've got to face it we've got to go over the horizon not really knowing what's going to happen but if you've got a great crew if you've got a great ship then you are in a really good place so metaphorically i use that um you know when we went when when the 
original explorers set sail. They didn't, know, they didn't even know if the world was round. They didn't know if they were going to fall off the edge. So, you know, we need that sort of courage as we go forward in, into addressing the climate emergency. And I think shipping is a great metaphor for that because of the courage and the, and the romanticism that shipping has kind of uh, reflected in, in, in all of us. We need good stories about the future, not the gloom and doom ones around, you know, we're going to be awful. But the thing, the thing, the thing of those stories. I, I was not in Glasgow. I wasn't up at COP twenty six. Um, I wouldn't have been able to afford even the most of uh, basic hotel rooms if I'd man- decided to go there at the last minute. Going by what I heard, but I, I got the impression there was a lot more shipping and maritime stories. There was a lot more representative of the shipping and maritime industries up in Glasgow than we've ever seen at a pre- any of the previous COPs. And let's not forget the number 26 on COP26. All right, it should have happened last year. But we've had 27 years of COPs, haven't we? And this is the biggest one to represent, to see the maritime industry represented. Absolutely. I mean, I I did an event at, at COP23 Paris um, with the International Chamber of Shipping, where we talked about available technology and so on. Um, and I think that was the only shipping event that happened in Paris. Uh, in Glasgow, I, uh, the, there were multiple events. The ICS did a long um, two-day event with ship owners, but Maritime UK were there um, and they did events over the fortnight looking at different technologies at Glasgow College. Um, Malin, uh, the marine engineers on the Clyde, they did a fortnight of maritime-related events in a, in a facility that they built so shipping was there global um, maritime forum getting to zero commission commission coalition 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 yes don't 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 recall that bit um yes so, so they were there um it was it was it was kind of there was like a big shipping enclave and it was really encouraging because um on the the day after the, the, the formal transport day, we hosted a, an event at Malin with um, Bureau Veritas, where we tried to bring together all of the disparate conversations that had been going on across the shipping piece and bring it into the context of what we learned at COP26 about you know, where transport was going. And we had a really fabulous session. We'll be launching the report from that in the next few days. Um, where people were invited to, to work together to figure out what's next. So, you know, there's been this great burst of activity across the maritime space. And we now know, fully embrace the fact that this is a huge challenge. What do we do about What do we do tomorrow? You know, we, we, we kind of, we're all there. We don't want to go back to our desk and do exactly the same thing. So what are we going to do? So that was really fascinating. And yeah, there was some, there was some edgy conversations between different types of people across the let's call it ecosystem but there was an awful lot of collaboration there was an awful lot of good understanding that this is a crisis and we need to work together you you mentioned that uh mentioned it as a sort of maritime and shipping enclave while you're there but but what about that sort of engagement with the non-maritime non-shipping um groups or entities while you were up at COP26 COP because a lot of the time we hear about how the message of shipping and the importance of shipping is being missed or what the real story is and you you said a minute ago about how it's sort of that real positive story of shipping needs to get out there how about getting that message about shipping outside of the shipping while you're up in mm-hmm. Glasgow 
So I, do, I, mean, I can't speak for anyone else. I went to other events. Um, and so they were more about innovation because obviously that's the sort of where, where we have a, you know, if we have a Venn diagram, we're in shipping, but we're also in innovation. So there's quite a lot of um, innovation activity that I was involved in. Um, so I was crossing over into different industries and learning from different industries about stuff that we could bring into shipping. I, I sense, and I might not be right, uh, and I'd like to be wrong, that shipping mostly talked to itself at COP26. Um, but there was a wider widened group of people there talking to themselves as it were if you know what i mean so there was a yeah. there was a, a, a wider um reach across the shipping ecosystem so there were marine engineers and there were cargo owners and there were ship owners and there were um technology developers all in the same room so i think that's an advance um but i still think we need to get better at talking to other sectors, you, you've, you've, as I, as I said earlier, you before your um, um, engagement, the current engagement you've got, um, you were at uh, you're running this company B Nine, um, beautifully named B Nine, letter B number nine, meaning obviously the word. Um, how did you get even into that? That was, I, I guess, was one of your earlier forays into the stepping stone into the maritime sector yeah. in some way was it how did you go from your because previously i know that you've been involved in offshore racing but also in formula one racing at some point and i've no idea what you did then um <laughs> but how did you go from formula one and racing to the maritime sector and how did that sort of environmental picture develop as you went through it i don't know there might have been a guilt thing around formula one by the time i got to renewables but um uh, so, so, so the, so the common thread is innovation. I started out my career working um, for cellular telephones before cellular telephones were invented. So, um, I worked for the UK firm that was then called Cellnet, and it, we, we, you know, we just built it. We, we, we built a network, and we sold. We, we arranged ways of selling phones, and. What's interesting about that, two things, I think, quite a lot of interesting tales about how we thought the name up in a pub over a gin, um, rather than spending a branding agency, which then the, the, the new owners spent 10 million on branding. We did it you know, over a couple of pints. But, um, you know, the, 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 the fact that uh, when we first went to market and said, hey, mobile phones, everyone went, nah, what would you want a mobile phone for? I've got one on my desk. And now we can't move for the things. Uh, the second thing that I think was re really interesting was we hired really smart consultants to give us the best estimate of market penetration for this newfangled technology. And they came up with something like 30%. So, you know, they're, they're in, their vision was you could only get 30% of the market to use these phones. Again, wildly wrong. So I think the thing that we could take away from that is when you start innovation, you have no idea when it's where it's going to go. And so whatever you think, so your predictions are always made in the world in which you live and not the world in which uh, emerges in adjacent technologies at the time. So I think that's really interesting. So I was working in um, Selmet and then I got headhunted to work in F1 and I worked for Ford um, and the Benetton Formula team. And uh, Ford Engine was in the Benetton Formula team. And one of my jobs was... Um, 
engineering the technology transfer from the race car to the road car. So that sounds very grand, but basically it was talking to people like, oh, could you use that thing in your Ford Fiesta? I mean, you know, could we adapt that? Can we lightweight this? Can we learn from that? Um, And also some of the psychological things, really, about the way that the Formula One team operated, which was Mm. relentless innovation um, at speed uh, in order to try and beat the oppo the opposition on the next fortnight so that that, did that looked... give you the appetite did that give you the appetite that meant that failure was an option um it gave me the what it gave me was that you, you know you can move you can move fast if you need hmm. to and you need a great great team and i was very fortunate to be part of a fabulous team um and I think fail fast is the important thing. Try yeah. something. Drag a bit of front wing end plate home on the on the on the flight on Sunday night. Get it to the factory. Tweak it. Take it back the following Thursday and try that and see whether you can get a you know a fraction of a second off your lap time. Um, and it was a, it was about a complete focus. Everybody was focused on winning, and you know even that was only winning the people that you didn't beat last week because we were never up with the with what was then Williams and McLaren who were at the front mm. of the board and the Ferraris. But you know it was fabulous, great. Um but one of the sponsors that I worked for, um a company called Logica wanted to do yacht racing. And I thought, well, pretty much the same, isn't it? You know, it's just mm. yeah, go go do yacht racing. Um quite different because you don't actually know when a yacht is going to come home from the race so that's an interesting thing but at the same time we started to develop digital systems to keep in touch with race yachts when they were far over the horizon you know talking about the horizon um, earlier Uh, and so that was really fascinating and as part of that um, in fact the, the, the managing director the owner of B9 had been involved in making a Formula One digital um, simulated driving platform. And so we had kind of crossed, but we got to know each other a bit better when I was working in yacht racing. And um, and then we thought, well, how hard could it be to tap, transfer the technology from yacht racing into merchant marine? He was a marine engineer and he'd been working on oil and gas rigs, David Surplus. And... Um, and he started to think about, you know, we started to learn about climate, started to think about solutions. And B9 um, built wind turbines. So they built the first wind turbine in Ireland, um, 45 kilowatt hours. Now we can see, you know, beyond imagination then that you could have 17 megawatt floating devices, just just. Just never thought that. Knew it was a good idea, but didn't know quite how far and fast it could go. Um, and so, again, over a pint, I don't want you to think my whole life is directed through pubs, but David and I set up B9 Shipping to, to put it together. And then B9 was sold to um, Gamesa. And um, and we decided that, you know, well, we had to rebrand. So we rebranded it to Smart Green. Yeah, and that, not, that was not in a pub, I don't think. Okay, so at least that bit was done over a cup of tea, was it? 
So yes. smart green shipping now, you, you've now evolved this um, idea. You've been working with companies like Drax um, and Humphreys Yacht Design. Um, you've been doing this for quite a long time now. I mean, if I was to be critical with you, I'd say, well, I don't see much change yet from when I first spoke to you. I interviewed you two years ago, um, yeah. I think, to talk about what you were seeing as happening with Smart Green Shipping and this relationship with Drax, which is a energy company in the UK. But the, it's I think the arrangement, if I'm not mistaken, was about transporting wood chip into the UK. Um, for one of its uh, bioenergy uh, solutions, if I remember rightly. So, I mean, so tell me a little bit about then. So, so what's happened with Smart Green Shipping over the last um, two or three years? And where do you see, and this is where we're going to start having this conversation now about finance, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yes, we had, um, we were fortunate enough to win an award from Innovate UK, which is a UK government funding for innovation, who's sort of in the name. Um, and Drax were at, were part of the collaboration that won that, and um, we worked with one of the ships that was owned by Ultrabolt that was moving um, wood pellets into the UK for the Drax power station. So we were able to model a di- you know we use a digital twin of that particular ship, the Ultrabolt Tiger, um, model the ship working with and without wings we were able to develop design of the wings with some of the funding that we had um, but more importantly we were able to spend time with the owners with the crew with the port and and really get to grips with the practical challenges that they were concerned about At LR were part of the team so you know what are we going to do about visibility when these things are, are in position how do we load and discharge what you know those sorts of conversations um, and so we, we developed the design for um, 100% renewable, retractable, automated wing sails. So you don't need to have crew involvement. They, they're, they're, they're smart. If the wind is blowing from that direction, that they will know which way to, to, to turn to harness the amount of wind, the maximum amount of wind. Um, if there's a, a, a bridge coming towards them or if there's too much wind or not enough wind, the, the, the rigs know to get out of the way. So really, really cool design. Um, we finished that project at the end of 2019 and we started to talk to Scotland about um, using marine engineers in Scotland and basing the business up there because it's a really good place, obviously, the Clyde's heritage. Um, and... Uh, then we kind of had a big obstacle with COVID because talking to governments whilst they were dealing with the pandemic was challenging mm. and talking to critical energy infrastructure whilst they were addressing the issues around a global pandemic tracks, critical infrastructure uh, was also problematic. So we sort of hit a bit of a roadblock because of COVID Um, But we have subsequently been awarded a grant from Scottish Enterprise and um, Drax and um, a ship owner and the Institution of Mechanical Engineers have supported us in in winning a grant from Scottish Enterprise. And we need to unlock that with private finance. And here's the rub. Private finance is incredibly difficult to find, not only for shipping projects, but for multiple 
let's call it green solutions. So it's not only renewable energy, it's um, you know, biodiversity, it's, it, it, it's all sorts of commercial opportunities that have been developed by um, what I call climate entrepreneurs who are, who are being really smart about the fact we've got to start reducing emissions very quickly. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and there's just not, so, so we hear at COP, we were hearing, oh, there's loads of money, trillions of dollars, but there isn't, you know, $1.6 million for a three-year project, which is what we need. That's, that doesn't exist. And so, I mean, you, you know, or if it does, it's incredibly hard to find. And um, we've worked with some of the best fundraisers in the business. Big, big banks have been trying to help us. Um, individual, really well-placed uh, people who know people who, you know, private offices, that sort of stuff. And it is really, really hard. No one expected it to be this hard. Um, Mm. And I think what we've discovered is it's actually a structural problem. It's not, it's not us, although it's very easy to believe that you're a personal failure. It's not. It's about um, the technology is too early. That's what that's what the most common pushback we get. But why why is why is that still a perceived issue? We can you and you and I can list you know a good dozen vessels currently out sailing the seas with some sort of system on board. For, um, for you know, for wind assist propulsion, we we can point to a lot of companies um, that are developing solutions. Why is there this structural obstacle when it comes to looking for finance? When surely, to a point, I understand that you know there's the, there's still the, some sort of proof that needs to be done in terms of the uh, maturity within the sector. But to a point, that we we can demonstrate that there are systems working that there is appetite as well given what you were talking about earlier on about the 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 way that the industries come together about decarbonization so we know there's the appetite we can demonstrate the technology so why is there this uh kind of systematic issue with the finance so i think it's it's specifically about this technology so what so what we're seeing are the Fletner rotors. The Fletner rotors have demonstrated the technology. They have gone, you know, physical structures on real ships gone to the water. So that's what the so so, so all of the actors are entirely rational. I would say that there's no, there's nobody that's being um, there's no climate deniers in this conversation. It's not it's it, it's not irrational, but the the finance sector has rules and it can't invest in unproven technology, and that's logical if you've got any money in a bank you don't want them to be you know throwing it about on stuff that they think oh that's quite a nice idea it's women i get that um so the flat narrators that we see on the on the on the water have got a head start they've got some funding north power got some funding earlier earlier in its development mm. that enabled it to, to demonstrate the technology in the real world and then once you've done that, it's much easier to get the scale funding. It's much easier to get the next scale funding. Where we're at with the wing technology is that we've developed it in digital computational fluid dynamics suites, um, but we haven't put metal on decks. And given the market confidence that the, the, the systems that we say will work do work, 
and that the fuel savings that we have 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 done really big maths around and not us but university of southampton have done um actually stuck up in the real world now if we were still in motor racing we wouldn't need to build a physical model a physical structure we just go right okay we'll try that we'll try that but we're, we're not in motor racing we're in this much more conservative world where we do need to think um, we do need to all adhere to the rules so we we need to demonstrate the technology now we need to demonstrate wing technology we need to demonstrate tidal we need to demonstrate wave we need to demonstrate you know carbon sequestration or in soil mm. all sorts of technologies are in this terrible it's called the valley of death um i prefer to call it the innovation hump because i feel like there's a better chance of getting up and over a hump than there is going into the valley of death so, yes the valley of death does sound slightly terminal uh, to go yeah. overcoming an obstacle and i'm not good with heat um so i so but i think that it, it, it is a real problem and i think at, at cop actually we did identify through some of the workshops that i was involved in that this is a problem um that is 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 not to do with the technology or the or, or the individuals that are involved in that technology um and what could we do about that well we could create a fund which might be you know the fund that the ics is suggesting will be suggesting at mepc 77 but even if that's ratified it won't get in in place till 2023 because of all of the admin stuff that goes with it so is there a way that we can create a fund for these sorts of technologies to be accelerated through the demonstration phase which i think is really critical um and, and i think that you know the the, the market the, the shipping industry the ship owners that we talk to are ship owners they're, they're moving cargo about they're not an r d company no, and I've seen that um, comment from some people. So why should the shipping industry be the one that's um, being asked to fork out the money for the R&D uh, for something that is going to be sold to them at, at, a, at a later date? But that does raise the question there about where public funding comes in to sort of alleviate some of that risk, because we've got the EU um, horizon money. Um, you mentioned UK funding previously. There is UK funding there. There are other institutions that have been known to put up money um, to sort of help with that R&D. But are, are we talking here about mostly about public funding and open funding for more nascent R&D uh, rather than that um, kind of proof of concept before bringing something to the market is it just a is it also a case of where you are on that development slope yeah so um the innovate uk funding that we that we won was for feasibility that that so that's kind of trl technology readiness level one two three four very early stage mm. you've had a good idea you develop it in the lab basically which is what we've done. Um, so, so it's that. So, 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 public money is really helpful, but you still need to unlock it with private money. The way that the system works is you need private money to unlock it. Um, at the feasibility stage, that's probably within the reach of an SME 
it, to find the to, to find the private money. But when you start to get into metal bashing and putting teams of engineers on installations, you're into millions of pounds. So what public money does is it de-risks it, but it doesn't. It still requires private money to be part of the mix to unlock it, and the public money is not paid until um, the company has paid the invoice. So if you bought a bit of metal, a chunk of aluminium to make your wings, that might cost you a million quid. Now, as an SME, that means we have to find a million quid to bankroll the whole project until because we, we, we don't get the money back. So that's a really difficult challenge for a lot of SMEs. And um, so it's, you know, the money's there, but it's it's also very difficult and expensive to, 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 to manage. And uh, so that, so we've seen, for instance, the Clean Maritime Demonstrator Competition, which great initiative um, through the Department for Transport in the UK. But that project, uh, the winners of that project were mostly big corporations that can manage that cash flow they've got the deep resources now my question about that is do you then get the most innovative people and the most agile sorts of solutions being developed through those mechanisms because you know the people that i have been presenting with a cop to you know in innovation forums and things they're young smart small companies you know father and son one particular unitro fantastic hydrogen delivery system developed by a guy, a guy called Stephen Lewis and his dad and they're just brilliant um so so there's kind of you know there's a different mindset in some of the really innovative stuff that's coming through and I think where the funding public funding tends to go is into more establishment and I'm not, I, I, and I would argue that we need to be more innovative about how we do our funding. Have you seen any indications then that that is likely to happen? Have you seen any positive signs around that um, innovation obstacle, or, or rather, not so much innovation ob- obstacle, that sort of realization obstacle? Yeah, I have. So, I see some, so there are some realizations coming along. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday in a in a you know in public funding and um he you're going to say in a pub again then no 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 i I haven't been to a pub since i got back from glasgow it's extraordinary probably after effect but i was talking to to this guy and he said he had to book extra time with his therapist if he was going to apply for eu funding because it's such a tortuous process um and it's you know it's time consuming and there's no guarantee of success and the way that I see it is that we've kind of created this hero figure of the entrepreneur. It's a Steve Jobs or it's a it's a you know Zuckerberg or something. They're going to invent something in their garage and then they're going to be multi-billionaires. And so if that's what government is supporting, then absolutely it's right that the entrepreneur should put some risk, skin in the game. But we are fight, facing a, a climate emergency and climate entrepreneurs have different motivation. You know, yes, we want to make money. Of course we do. And we want to make stacks of it for the people that invest in us. But primarily, we want to get to market so we can start to drive down emissions. 
and so the argument that I'm making is that there are that there are different criteria we should be uh, applying to assessing climate yeah. solutions. Yeah. Well, let's see where that where that goes. Um, we're running out of time now. We've been talking for quite a long time, about forty five minutes. Um, and I'm not sure how long people would like to listen to mine or your voices. Um, although, as in the past, Diane Gilpin, we have had conversations lasting two or three hours, um, mm. and they have been in a pub. So yes, next time I see you, I must buy you a pint. Guy, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been great talking to you. Well done on surviving COP26. Um, glad to see it was uh, a good success for you in some respects, even though it's still a challenge. Um, and anybody who's listening to the Aranax podcast, do remember that they can uh, sign up through their various favourite podcast apps to get regular updates and to see the uh, the back stories that I've done over the last couple of years. And go onto the Fathom World website where you can subscribe to my um, irregular once a fortnight newsletter um, and read other stories to do with the transformation of the maritime and shipping industry. So until the next time, from me, it's goodbye. And from Diane Gilpin, goodbye. goodbye. Thank you very much.